Day 6 of Totus Tuus' Novena On John Paul II's Encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia The extraordinary assembly of the Synod of Bishops in 1985 saw in the concept of an ecclesiology of communion the central and fundamental idea of the documents of the Second Vatican Council the Church is called during her earthly pilgrimage to maintain and promote communion with the Triune God and communion among the faithful. For this purpose she possesses the Word and the Sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, by which she constantly lives and grows, and in which she expresses her very nature. It is not by chance that the term communion has become one of the names given to this sublime sacrament. The Eucharist thus appears as the culmination of all the sacraments in perfecting our communion with God the Father by identification with His only begotten Son through the working of the Holy Spirit. With discerning faith, a distinguished writer of the Byzantine tradition voiced this truth. In the Eucharist, Unlike any other sacrament, the mystery of communion is so perfect that it brings us to the heights of every good thing. Here is the ultimate goal of every human desire, because here we attain God, and God joins himself to us in the most perfect union. Precisely for this reason, it is good to cultivate in our hearts a constant desire for the sacrament of the Eucharist. This was the origin of the practice of spiritual communion, which has happily been established in the Church for centuries and recommended by saints who were masters of the spiritual life. Saint Teresa of Jesus wrote, When you do not receive communion and you do not attend Mass, you can make a spiritual communion which is a most beneficial practice. By it, the love of God will be greatly impressed on you. The celebration of the Eucharist, however, cannot be the starting point for communion. It presupposes that communion already exists, a communion which it seeks to consolidate and bring to perfection. The sacrament is an expression of this bond of communion both in its invisible dimension, which, in Christ and through the working of the Holy Spirit, unites us to the Father and among ourselves, and in its visible dimension, which entails communion in the teaching of the Apostles, in the sacraments, and in the Church's hierarchical order. The profound relationship between the invisible and the visible elements of ecclesial communion is constitutive of the Church as the sacrament of salvation. Only in this context can there be a legitimate celebration of the Eucharist and true participation in it. Consequently, it is an intrinsic requirement of the Eucharist that it should be celebrated in communion and specifically maintaining the various bonds of that communion intact. Invisible communion though by its nature always growing, presupposes the life of grace. 
by which we become partakers of the divine nature and the practice of the virtues of faith, hope and love. Only in this way do we have true communion with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Nor is faith sufficient. We must persevere in sanctifying grace and love, remaining within the Church bodily as well as in our heart. What is required, in the words of St. Paul, is faith working through love. Keeping these invisible bonds intact is a specific moral duty incumbent upon Christians who wish to participate fully in the Eucharist by receiving the body and blood of Christ. The Apostle Paul appeals to this duty when he warns, Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. St. John Chrysostom, with his stirring eloquence, exhorted the faithful, I too raise my voice, I beseech, beg and implore, that no one draw near to this sacred table with a solid and corrupt conscience. Such an act, in fact, can never be called communion, not even were we to touch the Lord's body a thousand times over, but condemnation, torment and increase of punishment. Along these same lines, the Catechism of the Catholic Church rightly stipulates that anyone conscious of a grave sin must receive the Sacrament of Reconciliation before coming to Communion. I therefore desire to reaffirm that in the Church there remains in force, now and in the future, the rule by which the Council of Trent gave concrete expression to the Apostle Paul's stern warning when it affirmed that, in order to receive the Eucharist in a worthy manner, one must first confess one's sins when one is aware of mortal sin. The two sacraments of the Eucharist and penance are very closely connected. Because the Eucharist makes present the redeeming sacrifice of the cross, perpetuating it sacramentally, it naturally gives rise to a continuous need for conversion, for a personal response to the appeal made by St. Paul to the Christians of Corinth. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If a Christian's conscience is burdened by serious sin, then the path of penance through the sacrament of reconciliation becomes necessary for full participation in the Eucharistic sacrifice. The judgment of one state of grace obviously belongs only to the person involved, since it is a question of examining one's conscience. However, in cases of outward conduct which is seriously clearly and steadfastly contrary to the moral norm, the Church, in her pastoral concern for the good order of the community and out of respect for the sacrament, cannot fail to feel directly involved. The Code of Canon Law refers to this situation of a manifest lack of proper moral disposition when it states that those who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Eucharistic Communion. Ecclesial communion, as I have said, is likewise visible 
and finds expression in a series of bonds listed by the Council when it teaches. They are fully incorporated into the society of the Church, who, possessing the Spirit of Christ, accept her whole structure and all the means of salvation established within her, and within her visible framework are united to Christ, who governs her through the Supreme Pontiff and the Bishops, by the bonds of profession of faith, the sacraments, ecclesiastical government and communion. The Eucharist, as the supreme sacramental manifestation of communion in the Church, demands to be celebrated in a context where the outward bounds of communion are also intact. In a special way, since the Eucharist is, as it were, the summit of the spiritual life and the goal of all the sacraments, it requires that the bonds of communion in the sacraments, particularly in baptism and in priestly orders, be real. It is not possible to give communion to a person who is not baptized, or to one who rejects the full truth of the faith regarding the Eucharistic mystery. Christ is the truth, and he bears witness to the truth. The sacrament of his body and blood does not permit duplicity. Furthermore, Given the very nature of ecclesial communion and its relation to the sacrament of the Eucharist, it must be recalled that the Eucharistic sacrifice, while always offered in a particular community, is never a celebration of that community alone. In fact, the community, in receiving the Eucharistic presence of the Lord, receives the entire gift of salvation and shows, even in its lasting visible particular form, that it is the image and true presence of the one, holy, Catholic and Apostolic Church. From this it follows that a truly Eucharistic community cannot be closed in upon itself as though it were somehow self-sufficient. Rather, it must persevere in harmony with every other Catholic community. The ecclesial community of the Eucharistic Assembly is a communion with its own bishop and with the Roman pontiff. The bishop, in effect, is the visible principle and the foundation of unity within his particular church. It would therefore be a great contradiction if the sacrament par excellence of the church's unity were celebrated without true communion with a bishop. As St. Ignatius of Antioch wrote, that Eucharist which is celebrated under the bishop or under one to whom the bishop has given this charge, may be considered certain. Likewise, since the Roman pontiff, as the successor of Peter, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity of the bishops and of the multitude of the faithful, communion with him is intrinsically required for the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice. Hence, the great truth expressed which the liturgy expresses in a variety of ways. Every celebration of the Eucharist is performed in union not only with the proper bishop, but also with the Pope, with the Episcopal order, with all the clergy, and with the entire people. Every valid celebration of the Eucharist 
expresses this universal communion with Peter and with the whole church, or objectively calls for it, as in the case of the Christian churches separated from Rome. The Eucharist creates communion and fosters communion. St. Paul wrote to the faithful of Corinth, explaining how their divisions, reflected in their Eucharistic gatherings, contradicted what they were celebrating, the Lord's Supper. The Apostle then urged them to reflect on the true reality of the Eucharist in order to return to the spirit of fraternal communion. St. Augustine effectively echoed this call when, in recalling the Apostle's words, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, he went on to say, If you are his body and members of him, then you will find set on the Lord's table your own mystery. Yes, you receive your own mystery. And from this observation he concludes, Christ the Lord, hallowed at his table the mystery of our peace and unity. Whoever receives the mystery of unity without preserving the bonds of peace receives not a mystery for his benefit, but evidence against himself. The Eucharist's particular effectiveness in promoting communion is one of the reasons for the importance of Sunday Mass. I have already dwelt on this and on the other reasons which make Sunday Mass fundamental for the life of the Church and of individual believers. In my apostolic letter on the sanctification of Sunday, Dies Domini, there I recalled that the faithful have the obligation to attend Mass, unless they are seriously impeded, and that pastors have the corresponding duty to see that it is practical and possible for all to fulfil this precept. More recently, in my apostolic letter Novo Millennio Innuente, in setting forth the pastoral path which the Church must take at the beginning of the third millennium, I drew particular attention to the Sunday Eucharist, emphasising its effectiveness for building communion. It is, I wrote, the privileged place where communion is ceaselessly proclaimed and nurtured. Precisely through sharing in the Eucharist, the Lord's Day also becomes the Day of the Church, when she can effectively exercise her role as the Sacrament of Unity. The safeguarding and promotion of ecclesial communion is a task of each member of the faithful who finds in the Eucharist, as the sacrament of the Church's unity, an area of special concern. More specifically, this task is the particular responsibility of the Church's pastors, each according to his rank and ecclesiastical office. For this reason, the Church has drawn up norms aimed both at fostering the frequent and fruitful access of the faithful to the Eucharistic table and at determining the objective conditions under which communion may not be given. The care shown in promoting the faithful observance of these norms becomes a practical means of showing love for the Eucharist and for the Church. In considering the Eucharist as the sacrament of ecclesial communion, there is one subject which, due to its importance, must not be overlooked. 
I am referring to the relationship of the Eucharist to ecumenical activity. We should all give thanks to the Blessed Trinity for the many members of the faithful throughout the world who in recent decades have felt an ardent desire for unity among all Christians. The Second Vatican Council, at the beginning of its decree on ecumenism, sees this as a special gift of God. It was an efficacious grace which inspired us, the sons and daughters of the Catholic Church, and our brothers and sisters from other churches and ecclesial communities, to set forth on the path of ecumenism. Our longing for the goal of unity prompts us to turn to the Eucharist, which is the supreme sacrament of the unity of the people of God, inasmuch as it is the apt expression and the unsurpassable source of that unity. In the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, the Church prays that God, the Father of mercies, will grant His children the fullness of the Holy Spirit, so that they may become one body and one spirit in Christ. In raising this prayer to the Father of lights, from whom comes every good endowment and every perfect gift, the Church believes that she will be heard, for she prays in union with Christ her head and spouse, who takes up this plea of his bride and joins it to that of his own redemptive sacrifice. Precisely because the Church's unity, which the Eucharist brings about through the Lord's sacrifice and by communion in his body and blood, absolutely requires full communion in the bonds of the profession of faith, the sacraments and ecclesiastical governance. It is not possible to celebrate together the same Eucharistic liturgy until those bonds are fully re-established. Any such concelebration would not be a valid means and might well prove instead to be an obstacle to the attainment of full communion, by weakening the sense of how far we remain from this goal, and by introducing or exacerbating ambiguities with regard to one or another truth of the faith. The path towards full unity can only be undertaken in truth. In this area, the prohibitions of church law leave no room for uncertainty, and fidelity to the moral norm laid down by the Second Vatican Council. I would like, nonetheless, to reaffirm what I said in my encyclical letter, Ut Unum Sint, after having acknowledged the impossibility of Eucharistic sharing. And yet we do have a burning desire to join in celebrating the one Eucharist of the Lord. And this desire itself is already a common prayer of praise a single supplication. Together we speak to the Father, and increasingly we do so with one heart. While it is never legitimate to concelebrate in the absence of full communion, the same is not true with respect to the administration of the Eucharist under special circumstances, to individual persons belonging to churches or ecclesial communities not in full communion with the Catholic Church. In this case, in fact, the intention is to meet a grave spiritual need for the eternal salvation of an individual believer. 
not to bring about an intercommunion which remains impossible until the visible bonds of ecclesial communion are fully re-established. This was the approach taken by the Second Vatican Council when it gave guidelines for responding to Eastern Christians separated in good faith from the Catholic Church who spontaneously ask to receive the Eucharist from a Catholic minister and are properly disposed. This approach was then ratified by both codes which also consider, with necessary modifications, the case of other non-Eastern Christians who are not in full communion with the Catholic Church. In my encyclical, Ut Unum Sent, I expressed my own appreciation of these norms, which make it possible to provide for the salvation of souls with proper discernment. It is a source of joy to note that Catholic ministers are able in certain particular cases, to administer the sacraments of the Eucharist, penance and anointing of the sick to Christians who are not in full communion with the Catholic Church, but who greatly desire to receive these sacraments, freely request them and manifest the faith which the Catholic Church professes with regard to these sacraments. Conversely, in specific cases and in particular circumstances, Catholics, too, can request these same sacraments from ministers of churches in which these sacraments are valid. These conditions, from which no dispensation can be given, must be carefully respected, even though they deal with specific individual cases, because the denial of one or more truths of the faith regarding these sacraments, and among these, the truth regarding the need of the ministerial priesthood for their validity renders the person asking improperly disposed to legitimately receiving them. And the opposite is also true. Catholics may not receive communion in those communities which lack a valid sacrament of orders. The faithful observance of the body of norms established in this area is a manifestation and, at the same time, a guarantee of our love for Jesus Christ and the Blessed Sacrament, for our brothers and sisters of different Christian confessions, who have a right to our witness to the truth, and for the cause itself of the promotion of unity. Let us pray. Bonnie Pastor, Parnis Ferry, Jesu, Nostri Miserere. Come then, Good Shepherd, Bread Divine, still show to us thy mercy sign. O feed us, still keep us thine, so we may see thy glories shine in fields of immortality. O thou, the wisest, mightiest, best, our present food, our future rest. Come, Make us each thy chosen guest, co-heirs of thine, and comrades blessed, with saints whose dwelling is with thee. Mary, woman of the Eucharist, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.